Okay, welcome Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiologist. I'm a nutritionist, and I've competed in bodybuilding before. Hi, I'm Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm a journalist, uh, strength athlete, uh, former competitor in bodybuilding, and current diehard strength athlete. And I'm uh, Charles Staley. I'm author of Muscle Logic, uh, creator of Escalating Density Training, and I'm also a competitive master's weightlifter uh, in the uh, comedy division. <laughs> Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach with Staley Training Systems. I'm also a competitive powerlifter and strongman competitor, uh, current national record holder in the APA. And today we have Cassandra Forsyth. Um, doctoral student and author extraordinaire. Cassandra, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you. Uh, I I think we should just start off by talking about who the heck are you? And, uh, you know, research interests, recent projects, um, anything you want to share about your resistance training background, things like that. All right, Uh, I am finishing my doctorate at University of Connecticut, which is ranked the number one doctoral program in the country for exercise science. I did not know that. It is. It is. And my research interests in the lab right now are low-carb ketogenic diets and their effects on health, body composition, and just (laughs) everything. (laughs) And... (laughs) Well, we study a lot <laughs> when it comes to that. And my project for my dissertation was looking at fat quality in a ketogenic diet and trying to determine does it matter what kind of fat you eat when you're restricting carbs because your hormonal environment is much different when you're eating a low-carb diet than when you're eating a regular higher-carb diet because of the effects of insulin. You know, is is your lab there, are you one of the few labs really taking hard looks at low-carb diets, or is this something that's stayed popular since, you know, the Atkins era or even before that? Well, we're one of the only labs that are researching it in the mechanism levels, molecular level, I guess you could say, but other labs are looking at more epidemiological levels. There is a guy, Jay Wartman, up in Canada who's actually applying low-carb ketogenic diets to populations, especially populations that traditionally don't have a high-carb diet and seeing some really awesome effects. And and he's, you know, measuring blood cholesterol, glucose, insulin sensitivity and whatnot. But, uh, you know, he's not putting everyone through a rigorous lab situation. It's just in their own environment. And it's pretty cool, the results he's been finding. So... That's my research life, but I really am interested in athletic amenorrhea, which is the phenomenon of a woman losing her menstrual cycle due to excess exercise coupled with inadequate energy intake. So I hope to look into that one day on a more uh, in-depth look rather than what I'm doing right now, which is just reading what everyone else is doing. Absolutely. You know, listeners should probably know, I, I just asked Cassandra to come speak at uh, a conference we had at the university on that very topic because it's something that's um, often gets attention, but I think Cassandra gives it uh, an even greater depth than sometimes you hear about it. You know, sometimes you'll hear just female athlete triad and things like that, but there's so many things that you can look at even within that that kind of phenomenon and that spectra of of problems for athletes, you know. 
Now, in terms of my real world, <laughs> I really like to lift heavy things. And I haven't Always good. competed in a strength competition, but I do want to do a bench-only competition. And I weigh 130 pounds. I'd like to bench 155, and I'm at 140 pounds right now for my bench. So I'll be getting tips right. from all you strong guys on how to do that. <laughs> right. At the... Uh Staley Strength Summit last fall. I, I I actually have a picture from you bench pressing. I should I should send that to you uh, in a dress. <laughs> yeah, dress and heels. It was great. <laughs> it was after that that I went back home to my home gym when I wasn't like flight fatigued and you know hadn't just finished talking and I did hit 135 without any problem at all and I hit it consistently now. So and I move up from there and I'd like oh. to. Get some advice from everyone, but and then I have competed in a figure competition, so I have got ultra skinny and lean. I, I was actually down to six percent body fat for a competition, and that was measured on DEXA, so I'm not lying about that. You know what? Maybe listeners should know this too. DEXA usually puts you at higher numbers than some other forms of body composition tests. I mean, every pixel shows up to a DEXA. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten on a DEXA, and I thought I was like seven percent fat, and I was like. 14, you know, it can be kind of disappointing for people who are tracking really closely. Mm-hmm. So to be down at 6, I was pretty lean. It wasn't necessarily the most healthy thing for my body, yeah. but I've been there. But um, now that I'm done my PhD, I just hope to get into, you know, back into athletics again because it's sort of been put on hold doing a PhD. As you well know, Lonnie, those things yeah. happen. So... Your own personal uh, opinion on carbohydrates, what do you think about the state of carb intake in this country, and are you a low-carb girl yourself? And I mean, I'm not saying your research will be biased by this or anything, but certainly people have personal opinions. So what are your thoughts about the way that Canadians and Americans eat carbohydrates, or you yourself, what are your opinions on higher-carb versus low-carb diets, stuff like that? <laughs> it's interesting you said Canadian versus American, because... I am Canadian, and when I first came here to the U.S., I noticed that Americans ate a lot more carbohydrates than Canadians did. You know what, does the epidemiology show that, or is that just something you noticed? I just noticed it. Well, maybe it's an East Coast versus where I came from, I'm oh, West Coast, Northern British Columbia, and uh, I just couldn't believe that you could walk into a convenience store and there was just junk food everywhere, and walk into a grocery store and the first thing you saw was cotton candy or, I don't know, potato chips as the profiled item of the day. Well, I'm a Canadian, too, and I can say that without question. I've told Lonnie this many times that um, we have what you guys have down there, but the varieties and and just the sheer volume of it is just so much greater down there. I mean, whereas in here, like you say, you might walk into a store and there's, you know, a rack with some uh, chocolate bars on it. You go down there and it's it's just, it's overwhelming just the amount of, volume and variety that, that's available to people down there. So. Welcome to the den of sin and iniquity, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and now in terms of what I think about carb intake, I think if you can oxidize carbs, you should be eating them, meaning like you're someone that's active and you don't carry around a lot of body fat, you're fine. I mean, as long as they're coming from whole food sources, you know, as much as possible rather than sugar drinks and candy bars and whatever else high fructose corn syrup is hiding in nowadays. Which is everything. (laughs) In harmony. (laughs) Yep, pretty much. 
but there are a lot of people that don't respond very well at all to carbohydrates, any type of carbohydrates, and would do best just to focus their diet on vegetables, proteins, fats. Basically, that's it <laughs> because yeah. they just can't handle it. And it's really frustrating right now. I'm doing my clinical rotation for dietetics in the hospital, and I have to tell a diabetic patient that their diabetic diet is a muffin and sugar-free jam and orange juice. Because wow. it's consistent carbohydrates. Wow. But they're having sugar-free jam. Oh, and sugar-free sweetener in their coffee. That makes it a diabetic diet. That's almost a conflict of interest in a way. When What you're doing in the lab and what you're seeing and what you know the research says kind of is at odds with the education that you're expected to give, you know. Yeah, that's why this is just an internship where I'm, you know, just doing what they tell me to do and I'm not going to work this kind of job when I'm done. Just what it takes to become a dietitian, as you know, Lonnie. Uh, I do. <laughs> Here's one for you. It kind of puts you on the spot, I guess. Um, you mentioned that if you can handle carbs and if you're not walking around with a bunch of excess fat. Um, what would you call excess fat? I mean, that's something that, I mean, you, you see people go, they're so concentrated now on being like single digits and whatnot and thinking that's healthy. What, what, what would you classify oh. as excess fat? Okay, not single digits for every single person, but excess fat, I guess more excess, like visibly excess fat. Um, and I guess that is almost a personal because some people who have distorted body images think a little tiny bit of fat on their body is detrimental. But, you know, like your gut hanging over your belt or your, if you're a woman, your, you know, muffin top being a lot larger than muffin top should be if they should be anything at all. Muffin top. Is that a clinical term? <laughs> it's an understandable term for <laughs> the majority of the population. <laughs> so, or even saddlebags on women, you know, like very large hip widths, like relative to your waist width. That isn't, you know, curvy and attractive and sexy, but something that's just, you know, really cottage cheese kind of fat. Yeah. And. I mean, I've learned to appreciate body fat because for a woman it's important for reproductive function and normal homeostasis of your body, like bone health, cardiovascular health. But there is a certain amount of body fat that people do carry around that isn't healthy. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to mention, I don't know how much you've been updating uh, things like blogs and websites, but... Is there anywhere that listeners can go online and, and kind of get a feel for what you're up to and, and what you're all about? Oh, yeah, and I do update my blog at least every two weeks. Uh, my website is CassandraForsythe.com, and it has my books on it, my publications on it, and uh, sometimes I put my speaking engagements on it. And then my blog, I put, you know, this Iron Radio show. and I, I also put a – my last post on my blog is interesting to women. There was this pictorial on MSN Lifestyle, and it was these underfed, youthful, very young, well, not even youthful, just very young women representing the famous women of history, and one of them was representing uh, Rosie the Riveter, and the bicep she was flexing was not a bicep. <laughs> it was an underfed arm with skin and, you know, over top of her bones. It was pretty sad, so... Readers, listeners can see my blog and just know that I don't condone these underfed women being role models for society for women at all. I think muscle is really good, 
and athleticism is awesome, but we don't get to see those kind of women, you know, portrayed on magazine covers. We get these really thin, unhealthy, unathletic women. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, let me ask you this then. Um, what about what about your your books now? Because everybody should know, Cassandra has uh, authored or co-authored two books recently. So, can you tell us a little bit about those? The first book I co-authored was with Lou Schuler and Alan Cosgrove. It's called The New Rules of Lifting for Women, and the subtitle is Lift Like a Man, Look Like a Goddess. And the premise behind the book is to try to get women into the gym and lifting weights instead of just going on the treadmill when they do go in the gym. Because there's a lot of women that go in the gym, but they head straight for the cardio machines. They don't, they're, they're fearful of weights. So we're trying to get them more comfortable with weights and show them how to work out and why it's important and how it can make you look. And then the other book I wrote was The Women's Health Perfect Body Diet. And in that book, I introduced a lower-carbohydrate way of living for women and also incorporated a dietary fiber that can help women control their appetite because I'm not saying that women need to eat to obtain a body composition, but sometimes women have voracious appetites and it can't, they can't keep it under control, especially during certain times of the month. You guys don't know what I'm talking about, but it's very true. <laughs> just happens, and uh, this fiber is good for your health as well as uh, a way for you to help control your intake such that it's, you know, maintaining your weight or it helps you lose weight without it being detrimental to your health. So mm. That's what i got going on. <laughs> and I hope to be writing more books as soon as I'm done writing the dissertation, which is a book in itself as well. <laughs> right. God knows. Okay. <laughs> Hey, Cassandra, I have a question for you, and I think that when when you're talking about low- or no-carb diets, I think a lot of, mostly men, uh, there's sort of a common concern out there that it's uh, difficult to to maintain or to gain muscle mass in the absence of carbohydrates. So I wonder if you would address that. I actually can address that from a study we did in our laboratory, which has not yet been published only because we haven't prepped our manuscripts which sometimes that's a little hard to do. But we we did a study in men who were overweight and had them all engage in a three-month weight training program that was designed by Dr. William Kramer, who is known as like the father of strength and conditioning. And in this program, they weight trained for about an hour a day, three days a week, and they were relatively untrained men. So we were looking for a training effect. And we could have had them train more, but, you know, they're untrained, so we didn't want to kill them. Um, They were squatting. They were deadlifting. They were bench pressing, so primary uh, compound movements there. And we had them either follow a very low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet, so with less than 50 grams of carbs a day, or a low-fat diet, so with less than 30% of their total energy from fat. And their carbs were pretty high. (laughs) And after three months, we found that the low-carb group, of course, as we, and we've seen this before, lost significantly more body fat, but they also gained significantly more lean muscle mass. Interesting. We actually had one guy gain 19 pounds of lean muscle mass in three months. And On less than 50 grams of carbohydrate. Yep, and, wow. and he lost 36 pounds of fat. Wow. And yeah. obviously it's hard to extrapolate, but just instinctively, how would you translate the results of that um, to, to, to trained individuals? I think trained individuals have a little bit more carbohydrate tolerance and don't necessarily need to eat less than 50 grams of fat per day. 
I mean, even eating less than 100 grams of fat per day is still pretty low carb relative to what we normally eat. And it's the type of carbs you eat. So, you know, a Gatorade, you know, providing you with, I think there's like 30 grams of pure sugar in a Gatorade, or say getting 30 grams of carbs from, I think it's a half a cup of brown rice, is a lot different and has a different physiological effect. So it's not just total quantity, but also quality of your carbs you want to consider when you're eating. makes a big difference in what your body does with those mm. nutrients. Well, that is very cool. Uh, on that same topic, that's one thing I was going to bring up was the, was the fat part of it. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, some of that the differences there could be less due to the carbs than uh, if, if they would in, have included a bit more fat with the carbohydrate eating group? Well, that wasn't part of the design, though. If they had more yeah, so fat, then I, they would they would ultimately decrease their carbs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a replacement yeah, effect. Yeah. I'm just saying like a more balanced type diet is what I'm trying to get at. I mean, have you, has there been anything done on that or your personal experience? I guess what I'm getting at is how much, how big of a role do you think fat plays in, in gaining muscle? Well, I think I'm not sure about individual saturated or individual fatty acids, but I believe cholesterol has a big role in muscle synthesis, muscle protein synthesis. And Lonnie was telling me about a study, and I've I've seen the the research showing that I think it was like muscle protein synthesis correlates with the amount of cholesterol in the blood. Isn't that Lonnie? Yeah, it's Reekman. He's down at uh, Texas A&M. He's doing some of that. It's pretty amazing stuff. Where you look at. Uh, now, this is funny, too, because this is a uh, difference between Canadians and U.S. diet recommendations, but down here in the U.S., you'll you'll hear that people shouldn't consume more than 300 milligrams of cholesterol a day, dietary cholesterol. But in Canada, the interpretation of the guidelines are quite a bit different, whereas uh, they would suggest that dietary cholesterol has a, such a small impact on your actual serum levels that it doesn't really justify having strict dietary recommendations. So there's some differences there, uh, but everybody, I think, is going to agree that dietary cholesterol has a fairly minimal impact on serum levels, you know, when you go get your blood lipid profile done or something. But I think it's very cool that not only do we kind of demonize cholesterol down here as a bad nutrient, largely, but that actually now, at least for strength athletes, Guys like Reekman are finding that, wow, you know, we put these middle-aged guys on a weight training diet for 12 weeks or so, and they actually become bigger, more muscular, uh, if they eat cholesterol-rich foods. So there's some different mechanisms behind that and, and things like that. I don't know, Cass, maybe you and I should write a write a, a, a exactly <laughs> thing. an article on that. The cholesterol diet. Yeah, well, uh, Sue Kleiner also entered well, not introduced me, but reminded me of the importance of cholesterol. You know, cholesterol is one of the richest sources of phospholipids, and phospholipids, you know, make up the membranes of our cells. And the more phospholipid content you have in your cell, not necessarily it's more fluid, it just seems to, your cells just seem to function better. Um, And it's important for brain, um, like memory and cognition, which I don't have right now. I must need to eat an egg yolk, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> phospholipids really, uh, they're, you know, phospholipidylserine, phospholipidylethinamine. Those are, um, you know, neurotransmitters. They they help your brain function more correctly. 
And so there is a mood-enhancing effect with having enough cholesterol in your diet. And some people find when they start driving down their cholesterol levels with statins, they get depressed. And then all these people on statins are also on antidepressants. It's kind of sick. Like if you look at the average person that comes into the hospital, they're on like a statin, an antidepressant, an antihypertensive. <laughs> yeah, like 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 standard, like part of part of the food guide pyramid. It's like the drug guide pyramid people need or something. Oh, it's so sad. No, well, they need to know that they should pee on it like yeah it's kind of silly <laughs> anyway so so yeah having fat in your diet though does help you build muscle because i mean the only way you're gonna get cholesterol in your diet is to eat fat so yeah mm. well hey let's um let's take a look at the topic of the day That's the best cool. music ever. <laughs> uh, you know, Phil's what? Brother. today we have a, a cool topic. Yeah, that's my brother's band. Yeah, that's Phil's brother's band. We've been plugging them before. It's a cool, it's a cool segue there. Uh, what I want to talk about today, and I thought this would be cool to, to get uh, Cassandra's in, input on this too, is we're going to talk about um, preparing for a workout, uh, getting psyched up for the gym, getting yourself in a certain state. Uh, on recent episodes, like I know Fortress has been talking about stuff like uh, taking 20 minutes to kind of take inventory and, and get himself kind of in the right state. And I'll set this up with a, just a little anecdote instead of boring people with lots of uh, abstracts. But uh, Rob and I, before we used to go train, I'd go over to his apartment and we'd basically just make some bitter instant coffee and eat a hamburger or something and listen to heavy metal music and and just sit around for about a half an hour and just really get in the right mental state to go kind of fight with the iron, you know. So I guess that's what uh, we should talk about here today is let's just start with each of us about some of the things that we do to psych up for the gym, prepare for the gym, and then I'll actually talk about a few nutritional ideas and a, a little bit of research uh, on just clues on how people can get pumped up for the gym. So, Cass, let's start with you. Uh, as a as a woman, is there something that you do? Do you take a long period to to get psyched up and you know really have war with the weights kind of thing, or, or do you take a different tack? Uh, what do you do before you go to the gym? <laughs> uh. I don't know a lot of women like to take war with the weights, so <laughs> I'm glad you guys are asking me because I really do take war with the weights. <laughs> but um, I think one of the things I do to psych myself up for the gym is have a plan, and that's one of the biggest things that helps me have a great workout is knowing what I'm going to do when I go in there. And, you know, I, I throw in things here and there, but I like to know what my goals are for my workout, and it's more motivating, like so you know, if I say my primary movements can be bench press and I wrote what I, you know, did last week and what I want to hit this week, that's more motivating than just walking in there and going, hmm, what should I do? I have no goals. I have no plan. So that's what I like is, is and a comparison to what I did before. And then I also have to have good music. I have to listen to a lot of good music, and I do like heavy music. <laughs> it kind of makes Can you give some examples? What kind of, what kind of bands do you like? Yeah, tell me, <laughs> tell me, tell me some, some bands you're listening to here. 
You know what, Rob? Back off a little bit. Rob is a metal connoisseur, so don't don't be hypercritical, brother. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. I just want to hear what she's what she's what she's referring to. That's all. I just really like Slipknot. <laughs> that's cool. That's one of my favorite bands. So uh, that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to say anything else and get judged. But Slipknot is one of my favorites for lifting too. Um, and I just I put my headphones on and I just get really serious and I go in there and people say I look really pissed off when I work out, but. <laughs> But I don't want anyone to bug me. <laughs> well, when you go in the gym, well, right now, for example, I have, like, limited time, and I don't want to have to sit there and talk to some dude for half an hour who's going to tell me how to do, you know, like, how to bench press better because half no one in the gym knows how to bench press where I work out. So <laughs> so you're not chatty. You You put on the headphones, and you kind of look down and avoid people's glances and just get serious. Yes, yes, unless there's... Some days that I go in there to be social, but that hasn't happened lately. <laughs> this leads to a perfect question from one of the uh, listeners here. Jill in Oklahoma City is asking um, how you get psyched up for a workout and stay focused um, when you're in a serious gym that's all men or if they interrupt you and uh, hit on you, whistle and stuff. Great question. Oh, that's the best thing is when it's all men because if you show you can lift a lot of weight, they respect you so much more. <laughs> So get, I mean, if you if you feel intimidated and you go in there and you don't feel very strong, like go in at different times when maybe no one's around or work, do something at home to make yourself stronger. But guys, they really respect it when you throw the plate on there or, you know, if you've got 85 pounds. I mean, most guys think girls can only put little five-pound weights, which is what girls do. So it's like almost... I don't know. It's invigorating to put really heavy, well, heavy weight for yourself on there and and just do it and and just don't talk to guys or unless you want them to help you, unless or unless you really want to talk to them. <laughs> it's kind of fun to do too. <laughs> but but asking a guy for a spot as well, you know, if you just try to pick some guy that's working out by himself um rather than guys that work out together because it seems like the guys that are working out together are macho, I don't know, macho immature. Yeah, when I used to lift with Rob, he was very macho and immature. Well, you guys... I try. I wouldn't talk to you guys either, but... (laughs) I'm just... Thanks. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) No, but the guys that are usually by themselves and, like, kind of lifting more seriously, they they don't seem like they're going to be the ones to start giving you this, like, macho advice, like, oh, you know, if you do this. And like I said, especially with bench press, most people in the gym don't really know how to bench press correctly, like not flailing their elbows all over the place and putting their feet on the bench and stuff like that. You know, what you said about guys in groups and the quiet guy in the corner and stuff, I used to always laugh because sometimes, and we've all seen this, you walk into a gym and there's a, a two or, God forbid, three or four guys together and they're like, I don't know, they're leg pressing or squatting, and they're screaming profanities. We're hovering around the, the preacher bench. Yeah, pre- there you go, right, preacher curls. And just the kind of, you know, bravado that goes on. I, I remember specifically once I, w- I was waiting for these guys to get off the leg press uh, when I was in grad school. You know, they're hooting and hollering, and they're blasting music and stuff. And meanwhile, they have like four or five plates on a side, you know. And when... When I was ready, when they were finally done, I just said, can you just leave that on there? And I warmed up with the weight, with the weight and then just proceeded to, like, double it, you know, because 
the leg press is one of those low angle ones you could put over a thousand pounds on it and these tough guys all show and no go you know so it's the people who are sometimes the quietest in the corner but look awesome those are the people that you probably actually want to talk to definitely um, and for women, put a, put your headphones on and guys won't bug you. I mean, it, it is a little intimidating. I had a roommate. Well, actually, it's not intimidating for me. I don't really care what guys think. But I remember my uh, one of my roommates I lived with, I asked her to come to the gym and work out with me. And she says, no. She's like, the guys down there intimidate me. They're scary. I don't want to go down there. I don't know what I'm doing. So it could be because she didn't know what she was doing. But I guess to a lot of girls, it's just, guys can be just pigs so it's kind of annoying to go in there so what do you think about some of these uh these gyms that open up that cater to uh low intensity more female friendly kinds of environments like uh, i don't know do, does the curves chain do that or something like that what are you, what's your opinion on that kind of stuff should women build confidence by going together and and, and plunging themselves into the the more male oriented gyms or should they try to uh, build up some confidence and knowledge first in those other locations? What do you think? Well, I have a, I have a story to tell first. <laughs> Planet Fitness, I am not a fan. They're the no-judgment zone, and they have the lunk alarm. Do you guys know about Planet Fitness? No. I have heard about that. Oh, my God. So I was in Planet Fitness at 6 o'clock in the morning working out when I was doing my internship rotation up in northern Massachusetts. And... Uh, I had to work out in the morning because my my hours were all day long. It was the only time I could get a, a lift in. So I was I was dumbbell bench pressing with 40 pounds in each hand, so 80 pounds. And they say that if you drop the weights, they'll set off the alarm. Now, this is 6 o'clock in the morning. There is two other people in this little tiny gym, no music on whatsoever, and I let the weights down after I finished doing my reps. And, of course, they made noise. So the lady at the counter came up to me and said, you dropped your weights. If you do it again, you're going to have to leave. And I was like, what? (laughs) It's 6 o'clock in the morning. Of course it's going to make a noise because there's nobody in here. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, drop them onto my chest and roll off the bench because I've just killed myself? I I, I don't understand it. So So did you leave or did they have to restrain you or what? Well, yeah, because I was, like, flailing around and swearing and, you know, lifting heavy weights and intimidating people and judging. So I did say, I said on my last day, because they say no judgment zone, I was going to walk in there with a shirt that says, I judge. (laughs) That's hilarious. I always thought the better solution for Planet Fitness would be to offer um, everyone optional earplugs so that if they were personally offended by noise, they could just wear earplugs. I think that's a great idea. But the other thing with Planet Fitness is that they should actually get equipment in there that doesn't encourage you to sit on your butt because every piece of equipment in there is mostly fixed so that you're sitting. So all of the, I think it's Nautilus. I don't know. That's not the right word. Apex machines. There we go. I don't even know what they're called because I hate them. But, you know, all the seated, like seated leg extensions, seated hamstrings. One of their machines looks, I think you're right, Cassandra, one of the machines actually looks like a butter churn. If you know what an old butter churn is, it's like this barrel with a stick coming out of it, and you, like, rotate the stick like you're churning butter. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't understand. What do you mean? There's sensors in the floors or something to to pick off people who are putting the weights down to? No, they'll come up to you, and they'll tell you to leave. And I almost got kicked out. I was like, oh, I'm one of your, like, five members that even go to this gym. How can you kick me out? But... (laughs) <laughs> it was retarded, and 
you know, so if women want to go there maybe to learn, because they actually did have weights. The other thing with Planet Fitness is they have no weights over 70 pounds, which, okay, for me, I'm not really picking up the 80s right now. I hope maybe one day I will, but not right now. And so it was okay. So maybe for women that may feel intimidated by, by guys, there is a little bit more opportunity, but that the the atmosphere in the gym is they don't want you to even touch the weights. They just want you to look at them. And they want you to go sit down on all their apex machines and do like overhead press. It's it's so it's not necessarily a conducive gym to encouraging you into lifting weights. So or you have to be self motivated. What's that? You know, or making progress. They want you to sign a long term contract, not make any progress, and come back indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Yeah, and they want you to walk on the treadmills and not run because it's. Judging. Well, you know what? I'm I'm interested to get an update on Rob too. Rob, what what are you doing these days to uh, to prep for the gym? How are you getting your head into it? Do you do the old school that we used to do with the instant coffee and the the metal videos, or, or what are you doing right now? You know, I, I I'm a master of this stuff. Um, maybe I'm obsessive with this stuff, but I I really kind of look at the workout as being so much greater than just the act of doing the exercise. I mean, as you're you're saying, Lonnie, you know that I. It's it's an a workout to me is not a workout. It's an event, and I think if you really have aspirations to be really good at what you do, you have to look at it like that. It can't just be the act of exercise. It has to be kind of this, you know. You have to configure the the whole two or three hours that encompass this whole thing. Like my workouts probably my workout the other day probably only took you know forty five minutes, but I think that you know the event, you know, in my head the event was you know three hours. You know, there's the whole process of timing your last meal perfectly, you know, uh, the last meal right before you, you know, you train. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, whether it be coffee or whatever you do, I think ritual is important for a lot of people. I know it certainly is for me. And as you have you said, I'm really, really big. The only thing in this world that I'm as much into as weights training is, is, is music, very heavy music at that. You know, the truth is uh, the right kind of music in your ears can be as motivating as, you know, caffeine tablets <laughs> uh, as far as getting yourself. <laughs> I am not advocating people go pop Vibrant necessarily. Uh, the, the point is, it, yeah, it's, it can be super motivating. And a lot of people, they try just with the uh, either nutrients or supplements or, or drug approach to getting themselves uh, you know, really wired up and, and ready to rock, but music is just huge, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's in, so like I say, I always, I never leave the house um, to train without at least half an hour or 45 minutes um, directly, you know, attributed to preparing myself, you know, uh, physically, you know, what I drink, what I eat, you know, what I'm listening to, what I'm watching. So, yeah, music is, is, massive for me um again whether i watch it you know in dvd form or just listen to it and just kind of getting your head into it because you said actually i think last week lonnie or the week before about how you know sometimes people just leave the gym and they don't kind of give themselves a few minutes to kind of like just um i can't remember the word you used was but kind of come come down from the workout well in the same way i think you kind of got you got to ramp yourself up into it too um you know i get myself into an extremely aggressive um, mind frame when I go into the gym. I mean, it might not be visible from the outside because um, I'm actually pretty calm and you know insulated at that point. But 
you get yourself into this kind of feeling of, you know, you will dominate. Um, and at that point, I mean, it's good to always recognize the fact, the fact that you are flesh and bone and you can be hurt. Um, but <laughs> when you're walking into the gym, I think you want to look at yourself like a cyborg. You know, you are indestructible. You are there to humiliate everybody else who dares left around you. <laughs> well, that's a mindset. That's a mindset I think you have to get in, especially as a strength athlete. I mean, sure, we have to recognize that there's injuries, and injuries can and, and will happen. But if you want to be good and if you want to excel, you have to accept that and just forget about it. Yeah, you can't live in fear. I'm not saying be stupid, but you can't live in fear. You have to go in there with some, like Cassandra said, a plan, some serious purpose, you know, and, and get ready to kick some ass. Well, I was just thinking the other day, I was thinking, well, really, what is the difference between somebody who succeeds at something, at not just, you know, exercise, but anything in life? I mean, it's the ability to tolerate that which the average person is unwilling to tolerate. And I, I just thought about that the other day. I mean, so applying that to working out and, you know, and athletics and so forth, yeah, it's, it's being a strength athlete. It's the ability to, to, to and, and not only the ability to tolerate, but the the they, they want to tolerate things that most people would find just completely intolerable. So, you know what? Let me tangent just a little. I, I have one last question that I really want to have answered myself: is training with a partner. I've always been the kind of person. I was a little bit more solo. I mean, you know, Rob, even you and I, when we'd go lift, I'd kind of do the power bodybuilding thing while you were doing the power lifting thing. And if the two overlapped and we were doing the same sets together for a while, that's cool. But then just as soon, we could part and go do other things, right? So so one of my questions is, um, like, Phil, you and Charles, do you guys train together? I mean, is there, like, training partner kind of thing? Or or do you guys each each go your own way? How does how do you guys do that? A little bit of both. In the same environment, usually, but not doing the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I've done a lot where I train alone. And I train alone the majority of the week. Um, but uh, my thing is, I mean, I, a training partner can be the best thing that happened to you or the worst thing that happened to you. It depends on the person. Absolutely. You have to be able to feed off one another. You can't have a leech. You can't have somebody that you're constantly having to push up. They have to be just as intense as you. Yep. Dude, you know what? I, I've got to pull this in. That's the perfect segue. There was a study done in the mid-90s. Listen to this. I'm going to talk about two abstracts, and I promise I'll shut up. Both of these are about being around other people or using facial expressions uh, to get in the mood. Uh, One of these is – this is a study done in Berkeley. It was voluntary facial action and how it generates emotion-specific nervous system activity. And uh, here's a quote. Results indicated that voluntary facial activity produced significant levels of subjective experience of that emotion. So by basically a- appearing hacked off and serious and destructive like like Fortress or feeding off someone else's facial expressions like Phil was talking about, these are very real ways to get yourself into that event that, that Rob was talking about, the subjective experience of it all. And not just going through the motions. Um, so whether you're making the fake it or you make it, you know, act as if. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I, I when when I was a competitive point fighter uh, on the martial arts circuit, you know, 
when, just before a match, they bring you together to touch gloves, and uh, I would always uh, I would always make a joke to my opponent just before we started. I'd make some kind of a joke, and and uh, the, the the purpose of that was twofold. And the one was to uh, make the other guy nervous, wondering why I was so loose and and seemingly unconcerned. But the fact of the matter was I was terribly concerned, and <laughs> it was also to loosen me up a little bit too. So uh, there's a lot to be said for that kind of a strategy. You know what? That's interesting. When I used to do a tournament taekwondo, especially the full contact, you know, everybody puts on pads, and we had to choose red or blue. I would always take blue, so I was looking at the red on the other guy, thinking like a bull, you know? Oh, I got you. Uh, just with, you know, red being a more aggressive in the connotations. It's funny when you get people who think a lot like Charles or I, what, what we'll do in those situations. You guys are thinking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. The whole psycho, psycho your opponent thing. Well, you know what? The one of these two studies I'm talking about with the facial expressions, whether you're making them yourself to trigger your nervous system, uh, like this Levinson paper that was psychophysiology uh, back in 1990. This other one is the facial reactions to other people's expressions, and it's uh, the title is uh, a case of facial emotional contagion. So, in other words, when you're getting pumped up with someone like the way rob and i used to do the ritual of the coffee put on the metal rob always had the latest dvd of something that was absolutely you know death metal or uh very aggressive kinds of stuff a lot of scenery of you know images of warriors and and stuff like that but we would actually feed off each other because you can't help but get serious in that situation and that's at this paper by lundqvist it was a from uh, Sweden, it was a 1995 paper about how when you're around like-minded people, like Phil was talking about, not having uh, an emotional drain, but somebody who to help feed off of, you start making faces like they do, whether it's um, angry or you know intense and things like that. And just a quote from the end of that, Cassandra might think is interesting. There's it says aspects of gender differences reported in earlier studies were found in this case indicating a tendency for females to respond with more pronounced facial activity when other people around them are making certain faces. So women may be even more prone to this. So don't be around someone who who has a, a lethargy and, and apathy on their face, but instead literally put yourself around the right kind of people if you can because it's, it's actually going to help with that whole psych-up experience. Well, it makes a massive difference if you with the company that you keep in your training, whether or not you're training with them, Specifically or not, like like we were saying, Lonnie Boat, just because you have a training partner doesn't mean you have to do everything together. I mean, the, the training partners that I have had, and the, the majority of my time training has been solo, but I have had training partners. I mean, there's nothing wrong with going to the gym with the person and training with the person, but, you know, at certain points during the workout, you kind of just, you know, go do your own thing and then hook up again when, you know, when your two schedules, your programs kind of realign again. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think a lot of people think, well, if I'm with this person, we got to do the exact same thing at the exact same time, and we can't deviate from each of the schedule and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. You know, just I Sandra, just want to pick up on what, on what Rob just said, too, and I think group training is amazingly underrated, and I've, I haven't done it until recently, and I, I actually train at a weightlifting club, and so there's typically six or eight or ten of us um, in, in the same gym kind of doing related activities, and... Um, the, you know, the value of that is that you can really develop uh, a contagion. And um, uh, I think 
for most people, in most cases, having a training partner is vastly superior to going alone. But, you know, a, a training partner can still flake out on you. But um, I've been working with a group for like uh, three years now, and not once has the whole group flaked out. So there, there is a value to that. That's a great idea. Cass, are you still on? Yes, yeah, I'm here. Well, I just want to hear real quick from Cass. Cassandra, have you always trained alone? Are you like the lonely hero kind of thing, or are you uh, somebody who's had training partners before, and were they boys or girls? No. Well, I've had um, when I first started lifting, uh, I lifted with guys, and it was really motivating because I would try to lift as much as they could, and that was really cool. But uh, since I moved to Connecticut, one of my uh, most effective training partners was a girl who was on the swim team, and she was a breast breaststroke, backstroke, I, I can't remember what it is, but she was like one of the biggest, fattest girls. And she was so strong, and we had so much fun because she said even on her swim team she didn't know girls that wanted to lift heavy. So for women, I think it's a little bit more challenging to find a, a partner if your goal is to like be a little bit more aggressive in the gym and to pick up heavier weights sure. because most of the girls I know will not pick up anything heavier than 20-pound dumbbells or you know, squat more than, you know, 20 pounds each side or something or 25-pound each plate each side for back squat. It, it's just – and deadlift, oh, my God. If I could find a girl that could deadlift, I almost want to kiss her because I never see women deadlift. It's too bad you're not uh, – you don't live up here so my my fiancé can train with you. I know. Your fiancé sounds like a you, lot of fun to train with. You guys with. Would, uh, would level a gym both of you together. It would be awesome. <laughs> and that's the coolest thing is when you have two – uh, I guess you could say aggressive women together, you can really tear up a gym. And I've had some good training partners in the past, but I did want my uh, most recent training partner, uh, not the one that was the swimmer, but another one I, I became friends with. She was kind of a leech, like Rob said. Like she did like to lift heavy, but she didn't really have much, I don't know, I guess motivation to plan the workout or think about what we were going to do ahead of time. So it was always up to me, which was okay. I mean, I don't mind being a bossy person, but... I kind of wanted someone to give me a little bit more input, like, you know, if we got stuck in the middle of the workout, we wanted to try, you know, we didn't know what we were going to do, if, say, if we didn't have, like, a concrete plan. Um, you know, I wanted her to contribute, but she didn't really have that in her. Well, yeah, well, when you have a training partner, you definitely want somebody who, because, I mean, it shows, you know, a, a passion for it, too, when you have somebody who wants to contribute their ideas. And, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're the, always the one that's kind of formulating what's going to be done, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't like people telling me what to do either, but I mean, you know, if I'm training with somebody who I respect, like Longy or somebody who knows his, every bit as much as I do, you know, it, it just shows that, you know, and it, they're inspired as well, right, when they're like, hey, let's do this. Okay, let's do this. What do you think of this? Well, you don't want to carry someone. I mean, one of the things Rob used to always do with me, he'd, he'd be like, get here on the side, watch me squat. What do you think? You know, hips, watch the hips, watch the knees. What do you think? And... If, if you're with somebody who's totally clueless, they're going to be like, oh, I don't know, it looks okay to me, you know. And, <laughs> right. and that's the worst part. I mean, it's not so much having to tell someone what to do, but it's it's having to make them intense and have them give their all. If you're constantly having to emotionally push someone, it, it detracts from you. You're not able to, to feed yourself, you know. <laughs> you're giving a lot of your dinner and a lot of your energy to them. Yeah, no, it has to be. And which can attract. You guys have to both be able to play off one another. Absolutely. One of the things that Rob touched on, and then Cassandra did as well, I mean, it's that I learned this. The first time I really learned this was in Thailand when I spent six months there, and it was training uh, at Dennis James' gym there. 
Okay. And, you know, me a powerlifter, and then there were strongmen and bodybuilders. We all trained together. We all had different goals. and But we'd train together and train hard. And we maybe just do one move the same, and then all kind of break the same way, but we fed off each other the whole time. You know, you were you were resting and telling that, yeah, you'd feed off the other guys while they were doing something. You don't have to have the same goals to, to feed off one another and train hard together. Well, you know, I, I don't I have to of, do the same exact thing. I kind of resent the whole kind of, you know, ever-increasing gaps that exist between all the different, you know, disciples, you know, iron disciples, you know, whether it be weight and training or strongman powerlifting, bodybuilding. It bugs me, and Lonnie knows a lot about this. I mean, I, I'm kind of really old school with this. I, I believe that if you go into the gym and you like to lift weight, Basically, you're doing the same thing. I mean, your primary goal might be strength, but you, you dig the fact that you get you know you get strong as a as a side product, and you might want to be big, but you dig the fact that you get to lift heavy weights to do it. You know, it's like which is why I kind of like always aspired towards that whole kind of the barbarian brother kind of power body building style. It's just you know if you like to lift heavy things, why do you always have to you know why does everybody have to shun the other? You know, what I mean, you're all you're all there doing the same thing. It's just kind of you know the the end result you're hoping for is just a little bit, you know, the priority is a little bit different, but that's all. That yeah, is the largest school, difference you know, that we all have. old school value that I think. Sorry? I said that's old school, but it's an old old school kind of value. I think about when you talk like that, I think of black and white pictures of like Arnold and Franco and how those guys were powerlifters and bodybuilders. You know? That's what I'm saying. Why, why? I hate the fact that, you know, it's like there's such a separation these days, and I, and I understand that you know as as sports progress, you know they they progress towards more specificity in in the training and so forth. But I mean, let's let's be realistic. You know, we're all lifting weights. You know, and I mean, I mean, yeah. I, ultimately, I want to be strong, but I mean, I don't want that strength without without size. You know, and I and I hate bodybuilders who say I don't care if I can bench 500 pounds as long as I look like look like I can. I, I don't understand that that way of thinking. I don't understand that. I guess it's a benefit of being a woman because you don't really have that much, I guess, that many disciplines for women. Women, I guess, are all trying to get stronger, but I don't think you have the powerlifting woman versus the bodybuilding woman versus the Olympic lifting woman in the gym at the same time. If you have women in there lifting weights, you're kind of all on the same page. Right. So, and it's very yeah. it, it's very few women you'll see in the weightlifting area of a gym. And I'm talking more conventional gyms because that's, more of what or less I'm training at right now, it's different, say, if it was in a gym like Charles where people are coming there with a specific purpose and their athletes there for a specific purpose. Sure. But in conventional gyms, for most women, if you see a woman in the weight room and she's actually lifting something heavy, that's automatically your new best friend. <laughs> what a great point about the yeah the diversity there. It's, 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 it'd be a shame for someone like Cassandra to have to drive umpteen hours to Toronto to lift with Rob's fiance or something because you'd like to think that at least someone is around that you can you know get serious with some of the gyms that I've been in where the women were hardcore they almost had celebrity like status you know if the gym's like 90% guys the ones the women who showed up on a regular basis and were hardcore they were standouts simply because they were women and they were looked at you know, every bit as equals and as hardcore trainers and stuff like that. They weren't just somebody who was there to, you know, waste everybody's time or something. Well, every gym I've ever belonged in, like except for Pepsi, of course, as we discussed last week, because it's males only, but every gym I belong to, there is always that, and I think you guys are all agree, there's always that one or two women in every gym that, you know, um, isn't 
looked at as fluff by all the rest of the male members. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, this chick's real. You know what I mean? She comes in here, she kicks ass. You know, she's not just some flake that's coming here, you know, wasting everybody's time. Every gym, gym has that one or two women. Yep. It sounds like that uh, that woman's <laughs> Cassandra or whatever gym she's training at. But, but again, though, not to intimidate other women, if they want to move from, I guess, what you've termed almost flake status to hardcore status, they can. It just has to show, even if they start out and they're benching, you know, 65 pounds to start, I think guys will respect that, that they actually even got got themselves to go bench press. It, it has nothing to do with what they're lifting. See, that's the whole yeah, thing. It no. has nothing to do with the amount of weight they're lifting. It has to do with their attitude. Yep. You know? Right. I mean, I've yeah. said the same thing about, I've told Lonnie this, the same thing about men. I would rather see a guy that's 100% fighting like hell with 225 on the squat, you know what I mean? And into it, you know, versus some big gas bag that's got 405 on the bar and he's doing half-ass, you know, his form stinks. And, you know, he's sitting around laughing, joking around, and eating donuts between sets. and Right, or the loud mouths that hang around the preacher bench or something. Right, I mean, my, my <laughs> respect as a trainer grows much greater to the, the former person that I just described. So, I mean, it really does not. And I think anybody would say the same thing who is really kind of serious about it. It has nothing to do with your, what you're actually lifting. It's, it's, you know, the intent behind what you're doing, yep. you know, and the exactly. seriousness that, that you're applying to it. Mm-hmm. For women, one of the differences and probably the the roadblocks is that it doesn't come naturally for women to lift weights. It is a big learning curve, I guess. And I, I'll admit that when I first started out, and I started lifting when I was 17 after I uh, stopped being a gymnast, uh, I hired a personal trainer, but my personal trainer that I hired, she, it was a bodybuilding woman, and she was awesome. And she actually taught me how to lift weights and, you know, not be scared to go in the weight room and do things because I didn't know how to do it before. So to psych myself up at first was having that personal trainer there with me who I highly wanted to look like because she was muscular and she was strong and it was great. But for other women, you know, like I said, that first step into the weight room can be one of the most intimidating. It can be hard to psych yourself up to wanting to go do that because you don't really know how do I bench press? And Oh, if I am going to bench press, am I going to drop it on myself? And I've done that too before. I've dropped a bar on my head in the gym and pinned myself like with my hair underneath the bar on the bench press. And it was embarrassing, but I did. Yes. Do you have that on video? Or? <laughs> I only did. It was really bad. But I was in there benching and I wasn't, uh, wasn't fully awake and I didn't have very much strength and I thought I could do more than I did. And, yeah, you just learn. Yeah. It's not that bad. So I got a bruise on my forehead. <laughs> you guys and gals, I think we better get to a couple questions here and then wrap it yeah. up. Okay. Um, got one from Amy in Baltimore. A uh, couple questions in one here. She's interested in any detrimental effects of a long-term ketogenic diet. For a figure-oriented athlete, should a ketogenic diet be done just to prepare for competitions or can be used day in and day out? I guess it depends on energy balance. I'm jumping in on here because it's a woman in a ketogenic diet, but anyone can say That's all you. <laughs> uh, it really depends on energy balance. It, any diet actually is detrimental for a long period of time if it's if it's undercutting your energy needs, no matter what it is, low fat, low carb, doesn't matter. So, uh, And with ketogenic diet, no, it's not detrimental if it's long term. Uh, if it's under your energy needs, you can only sustain that for a, long, for a certain period of time. That's why you don't see figure competitors walking around lean all the time. And if they do, they've got, they're either genetically like that or there's something else going on wrong with them. There could be 
underlying issues there, like eating disorder type of issues, mm-hmm. which is very or common for women. Or What's pharmacy. that? Or pharmacology. Yes, that is the <laughs> We don't talk about women in pharmacology, but it does happen. And one of my former gyms up in Canada, 90% of the women were on something all the time. You know it what? This a, would be a great topic for a, a future, future uh, show absolutely. is to talk about the prevalence of, and even the kinds. I mean, I know it's controversial, but what's really going on when you talk about female fitness competitors or competitive male bodybuilders and powerlifters and and just lay down some, um, you know, real information because I think there's a lot of young people out there who get super unrealistic expectations by looking at people like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. yep, they're not okay, natural, one more. all I have to say. <laughs> all right, Phil, you um, Yep, uh, Chris in New York asks, uh, what are our thoughts on BCAAs? Um, believe in taking them all the time, or do you just get, or do you get sufficient BCAA from a high-protein diet? Lonnie, it's on you. <laughs> now you're going to show it at me. I will say this. Um, I have been reading about branched-chain amino acids since um, the late 80s, early 90s. It's not something that's new, uh, especially leucine. I mean, I have an old book. I'd have to go look at the actual date, decades old, talking about how leucine triggers protein synthesis. And there has been a real renaissance with branched-chain amino acids, particularly leucine, because it triggers the same protein synthetic pathway that insulin does, the mTOR pathway in muscle cells. So uh, a lot of people are still doing research about what the best dose is, um, when do you take it. Uh, I just uh, wrote an article a a couple of weeks ago on testosterone muscle uh, online, and it's a free article. But I was actually talking in the forum posts afterwards, which were – there's a lot going on there. But in the midst of all of the back and forth, one of the things was how much leucine – and if you look at research, um, a couple of grams of leucine added to a protein shake before and after working out is probably what you need. I mean, some people, they just, they'll pop branched-chain amino acid tablets all the time. They'll um, skip meals, like if they're dieting, and make sure they get the branched chains. And there's some logic to that. Uh, but for most people who aren't specifically in a dieting situation, uh, you know, getting five grams or so in your pre-workout uh, protein carb drink or something, or just protein, uh, and then doing it again maybe in the hour after you work out, that's a total dose of 10 grams of leucine along with maybe 15 or 20 grams of protein in each time. And that's really a lot. I mean, that's really a lot. If you do, if you consume more than maybe 10 or 12 grams of any single amino acid, you're going to end up with osmotic diarrhea, Um so taking huge amounts, probably not necessary and even risky as far as actually absorbing it and things like that. Um, from the dieting perspective, I haven't taken a hard look at that stuff lately. But, yes, I do think uh, because of leucine's effects in particular, but leucine, isoleucine, and valine, all three of the branch chains, there may be some value there. Uh, I think if I was going to diet and be really restricting calories – I certainly wouldn't be skipping meals, but if I was going to cut way back on meals or I found myself without my lunchbox or something, it might be handy to have something like that on hand to try to preserve muscle mass uh, while you're dieting. So I don't know if Cassandra has anything to add to that. but. Nope. 
<laughs> so you're, just, you're saying more, more. It's more, more important when you're going, say, hypocaloric, and trying to cut weight. Well, it could be, but it's also valuable. Uh, there's recent research that it's also valuable to add to your uh, weight gain drinks, you know, bef- before and after resistance training. So I think it, there's. Again, there's a real renaissance with that kind of research going on, and there's a lot more positive attention given to them, uh, whereas in the past, if you looked at data just from, the, let's say, the, the 90s, there was a certain era where it was really getting poo-pooed. Oh, brains change, you don't need it, but a lot of that's really changed since, the, let's say, around the millennium. So that's the best answer I can give. Does anybody have anything else? Is that it for the questions, Phil? Yeah, that's it for the questions. I just got one more thing. I mean, you'd say, though, that I mean it's getting down to the – the final percents on those, as in you're going for optimal there. I mean, just just from a real-world aspect, me, myself, I've never taken BCAAs for any extended period of time, and I think I'm doing pretty good. You know, I mean, you can build a hell of a physique on food. No, absolutely. I'll tell you what, I finally became intrigued enough, though, because of some of the the protein synthesis work that's been uh, generated lately, I finally got interested enough to actually get myself a canister of leucine, and I've been spiking my workout drinks with it. So, you know, everybody's different. That's the whole nutrigenomics concept, and uh, you know, maybe I'll talk about it in a later show. I'll see if I notice anything. But again, when you say I notice or I don't notice, that's so non-scientific. I don't put much credence in that myself, and I wouldn't expect listeners to either. But I am curious enough to start doing it because it's something that's uh, legal and it really crosses the line between nutritional and pharmacological, really, uh, because it, it, its effects are reproducible in the literature. It does enhance protein synthesis. But Phil, you're absolutely right. Um, is it going to make or break uh, your physique over a 12-week period? No way. Food's still where it's at. Okay. I wanted to thank Cassandra for being on the show. Um, just to point everybody out, uh, Cassandra has an official homepage. It's uh, www.cassandraforsyth.com. And her blog, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Cass, uh, it's cassandraforsyth.blogspot.com. Uh, Is that right? Blogspot? Yeah, and you can get to it from my website, too. Yes, I was going to say it's all from the website. And there's a link from the Iron Radio show here to her website. So, Awesome. Rock on. I guess that's a wrap. Great show. Thanks, everybody. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for information purposes. If you're interested in starting a diet or an exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also, seek the help of credentialed dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists.